Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for January 4th, 2019. I'm Brian Cardile. Next week, the California Supreme Court will convene for oral arguments at full strength, with seven permanent justices for the first time in 16 months. As recently confirmed, Justice Josh Groban joins his new colleagues on the bench. Groban was the fourth High Court appointee of the modern Jerry Brown tenure and thus creates, for the first time in over 30 years, a majority on the Supreme Court bench of justices appointed by a Democratic governor. That might naturally prompt one to foresee the court taking a noticeable leftward tack in the upcoming years. But such forecasts might be hazardous, according to a new study from the California Constitution Center, which concludes, among other things, that political background is a surprisingly weak predictor of the voting patterns of California's supreme jurists. The study, synthesizing hundreds of opinions from the past few years, found that Brown's past two appointees, Justices Leandro Kruger and Mariano Florentino Cuellar, have proven less liberal than originally envisioned, and also that Republican-appointed veterans of the bench, Associate Justices Carol Corgan and Ming Chin, and the Chief Justice, Tani Kantel-Sakaui, have rendered more liberal-leaning votes and authored opinions than one might expect. One of the chief number crunchers behind that study, Brandon Strasener, a senior research fellow with the California Constitution Center, will join us in just a few minutes to talk about his group's finding, which seem somewhat in tension with some palpable public concern over judicial bias particularly as to federal courts and the U.S. Supreme Court after the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh spun into a savage political fight, and as the president routinely rebukes judges for political favoritism when they decide cases against him, or when rulings from conservative quarters unwind liberal policies, our generally reticent Chief Justice John Roberts has spoken out recently to assure the country that justice is not administered by partisan Obama judges and Trump judges, as the president suggests, but rather by neutral arbiters adhering only to objective judicial principles. But our second guest, UCLA law professor and author Richard Abel, has published two new books tracking legal institutions and judicial behavior during the post-9-11 war on terror, and in which he found robust statistical support for the thesis that a judge's political background, namely the party of the judge's appointing president, is significantly predictive of that judge's subsequent voting patterns. We'll discuss his research, why the phenomenon might be somewhat different here in California, and also whether, notwithstanding those underlying statistics, Chief Justice Roberts' claim is at the very least a useful fiction, one encouraging public faith in courts and judges. First, though, let me remind you of a couple of things. First, though, let me remind you of a couple of things. If you have yet to find our podcast on some of the more accessible podcast streaming options like iTunes and the podcast app, we encourage you to do so. Finding us there by searching Weekly Appellate Report or Daily Journal helps get word out of the show, and reviewing, rating, sharing certainly does the same. Also, you're reminded that you are cordially invited to take a short true-false test after listening to this podcast on our dailyjournal.com site to receive one hour of California CLE credit. Folks finding and taking those tests goes a long way to helping us continue to provide this podcast outside of our usual paywall. And now, it's time for our opening briefs. The U.S. Supreme Court was fairly quiet this week, until granting a half-dozen cert reviews after conference today. The two most prominent grants are in a pair of partisan gerrymandering cases from North Carolina and Maryland, presenting the court yet again with what seems to be an increasingly inescapable constitutional question, one the court has as yet taken great pains to skirt. A couple notable pending petitions from our appellate neighborhood were not granted, at least not this week. Those include the Department of Homeland Security's attempt to enforce its rescission of the DACA program, which remains enjoined, and the Trump administration's appeal regarding a policy disqualifying certain transgender individuals from military service. 
Another, less political but still consequential appeal, challenges the decisive vote cast by deceased Ninth Circuit veteran Stephen Reinhardt, whose majority opinion in a liberal-leaning labor law ruling issued a week after Reinhardt's death. Challengers on the losing end of that ruling argue Reinhardt's vote and majority opinion, though completed, of course, prior to his death, should have been withheld when the judge passed away. And in another salient California-related challenge... Attorney General Javier Becerra filed a notice of appeal Thursday, which seeks to overturn a Texas court's decision last month that the Affordable Care Act, which twice now survived Supreme Court review, is unconstitutional. The Ninth Circuit was quiet for three days of this post-holiday week, but did issue two notable filings on Wednesday. In one, a panel boosted attorney fees due a Stanford University academic of Muslim faith whose mistaken inclusion on the TSA no-fly list left her barred from the U.S. for nearly a decade. And in an election law appeal, the court voted to rehear on Bonk, a challenge by the Democratic National Committee against two Arizona voting laws relating to ballot collection, which the challengers say unconstitutionally target minority voters. California Supreme Court news this week's most notable event was the swearing in Thursday of newly minted Justice Josh Groban, but unrelated to that and attended by much less pomp and circumstance, the court has quietly in the last few weeks done something nearly without precedent. It has struck down 10 clemency grants issued by the departing Governor Brown. As reported in our newspaper by criminal justice reporter Paula Ewing this week, such denials are exceedingly rare, and a spate of them over just a few weeks even more so. With more on this unusual circumstance, Paula is here now. Paula, thanks for hopping on the show. Thanks for having me, Brian. So uh, tell me, what uh, what exactly is going on here, and, and how rare, in fact, uh, is it? So the Supreme Court hasn't actually stepped in to block clemency like this since 1930. And in that case, which was um, known as a Billings case, they did launch an investigation. They held public hearings. They actually went to the prison and took testimony there. That's not at all what's happening here. The Supreme Court here is just um, simply issuing a boilerplate letter to the governor denying his uh, recommendations. In some of the later denials, Justices have decided to go public with how they voted, but besides that, they're not really telling us much. Is it clear, though, I guess what the the standard by which they judge clemency appeals is? As I understand it, courts are largely pretty hands-off when it comes to who the governor is is able to grant pardons or or clemency to. What, What is that standard, and what, I guess, is the court looking for to see whether okay, in this instance, it's time to to step in. Sure. So actually, in most states, the judiciary doesn't play a role in clemency at all. In California, they play a small role, which is that when, that under statute, basically no, no one can be given a pardon without approval from the Supreme Court if they've been convicted of more than one felony. And so... If, some, if an applicant has convicted more than one felony, the Board of Parole hearing does an investigation, there's an on-bank hearing, and then they send their recommendation to the governor, and the Supreme Court has to approve that recommendation. And, yeah, the, the court had this order in March kind of clarifying its role to say, you know, we defer to the executive except we step in to provide a check on potential abuses of power. So that's sort of where they have said they will step in, except they haven't ever clarified what the abuse of power means and what the abuse of power in these particular cases might have been. Um, prosecutors are quick to say that it's because Brown granted so many pardons and commutations. I mean, Brown, when he was governor, just in this past 
tenure granted over 1,100 pardons and commuted 152 sentences, um, which is far more than his predecessors, particularly recent predecessors who were in the single digits. But it's not really clear what the abuse of power is here. I mean, given that, that from what you say, it sounds like the Supreme Court has let quite a number of these sorts of petitions go through, be approved. Is there any way to tell? Is there any differentiating quality of these 10 that they've held up that that you can tell? So we haven't really been able to see a clear distinguisher for the ones that they're blocking and the ones that they're not. I mean, there was one that was blocked on Christmas Eve that for someone serving life without parole plus five years for murder and a firearm enhancement. And then two days later, they recommended someone serving life without parole for murder with special circumstances with a deadly weapon. You know, attorneys I talked to were not able to say one way or the other, you know, it's clear this was a much more egregious crime. Um, All of the ones that they have blocked, all the commutations that they have blocked, I should clarify that there were nine commutations and one pardon. All the commutations that they have blocked were all for people who committed murder and are serving life without parole sentences. As you say, there there have been clemency grants for folks who committed murder that were approved, so that isn't necessarily a, a distinguishing factor, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you can look at kind of the minute details in terms of the enhancements, but like in the example that, that I gave in terms of Christmas Eve versus the day after Christmas, both inmates in that situation are serving life without parole for murder with special circumstances, um, but one was given a commutation and one was not, and so we're not sure why that is. Um, We got a little bit of a deeper look. This week, the Supreme Court unsealed documents relating to a pardon that was granted for a former state senator, Rob Wright, and we got a little look into the pardon file that the Supreme Court gets, but a lot of it was already public record. So it's still, and we're still sifting through that, and we're trying to see if more is coming out down the line. Okay, maybe just one last one. If there aren't any real clear or obvious differences between the clemency petitions that have been held up and the ones that have gone through, have you gotten a sense from attorneys as to what might be explaining for one, the, the hold up on the 10, the, the denial on the 10, and also, I suppose, why, as you wrote, the process is, has been largely opaque. Sure. I mean, it's all really speculative at this point. Like I sort of mentioned, prosecutors are saying it's probably quantity. You know, the fact that Brown has issued so many pardons and commutations, the court has to step in. But other attorneys think it might be a more of an internal problem, that maybe this March order that, that was meant to clarify their role actually confused them. You know, I talked to David Edinger, um, who's of counsel at Horvitz and Levy, and who keeps a blog about the Supreme Court um, called At the Lectern. And he pointed out that half of these commutations required a pro tem vote from a court of appeals justice, meaning that the court, which has had six justices for all of these cases was presumably split 3-3. And that's really rare in these commutations where you have even one no vote. To have a, a split court is really rare. So the, the idea is, from Edinger was that maybe the court has confused itself. Maybe it is as confused as we are in terms of what abuse of power actually means here. 
Okay. Well, thanks for helping to shed at least a, a bit of light on this very interesting topic. Uh, Paula Ewing, criminal justice reporter for here at the Daily Journal. Thanks very much. Oh, thanks, Brian. Perhaps more than ever, encouraged by a complaining president and a politically volatile Supreme Court confirmation process, it might be fair to say that public expectation of the political neutrality of judges is waning. A new study from the California Constitution Center suggests, though, that at least with regard to justices on our state's Supreme Court, we need not take quite such a cynical view. Brandon Strasener is an attorney in private practice and a senior researcher with that group. He's here now to discuss the results of his organization's study. Brandon, welcome to the show. Hello, it's great to be here. You and your your organization, the California Constitution Center, have conducted this study now, a a, a pretty significant quantitative bit of research looking over the past few years of California Supreme Court decisions and parsing out a a number of interesting conclusions. Maybe let's start at the beginning, sort of when you went into the study, what were the sort of questions that you had in mind? What were you looking for? What were you hoping to learn? Yes. One of the things we wanted to do was to see if there was any sort of distinct voting blocks that formed between the relatively new uh, justices on the Supreme Court appointed by Governor Brown and the justices who, the senior justices, if you will, who had been on the court uh, before Governor Brown began making his appointments. Uh, We wanted to do that, and we also wanted to see if we could discern any sort of uh, clear partisan le- uh, leans or ideologies on the part of uh, any of the justices, which is a common assumption or common view that many members of the general public might have about members of of the judiciary. Before kind of getting to what you found in in this in this study, you did one a few months ago that tracked the judicial decision making of the court and largely just the court um, as it acted in the absence of a permanent seventh justice. It acted um, that way for for more than a year, as listeners will know, between when Justice uh, Catherine Wardegar retired and now Joshua Groban taking the bench. There, you you did note that it seemed that that those two blocks, the the senior justices that you say, and and the the more recent Brown appointees seem to be starting to form something of uh, of voting blocks. Tell me a bit about what you found in, in that study of about a about that study and what you found there? Uh, yes, we, we did. We did, and I'll note this is a fairly fine-grained distinction. When we examined the different sets of justices and the rates at which they concurred with each other, the, the rates generally were high. Uh, the lowest concurrence rate was 92% between Justices Liu and Justices Chin. So we're not we're not looking at a very large distinction, but to some extent, the the brown justices do tend to concur with each other a little bit more often uh, than the senior justices, and the senior justices tend to concur with each other a little bit more than the brown justices. So there are there are slight blocks, if you will, but they weren't necessarily reliable on an individual justice to justice uh, a ratio. Instead, we just saw a slight a slight matter of degree increased concurrence rate between the two sets of justices overall. One interesting piece of research in looking at the the six permanent member court was the behavior of those alternating seventh members, the pro tem justices. I thought there were some interesting things there, uh, including that you found those temporary justices were maybe less likely than one might think to just sort of go along with the majority in a given case or follow the lead of the chief justice. Tell me about the behavior of the the pro tems in in terms of uh, voting. 
Yes, that, that was probably one of our more interesting results. The conventional wisdom is that the pro tem justice, who is a justice at the intermediate court of appeal or the lower court of appeal, the, the pre- conventional wisdom for them is that they will just kind of tend to go along with the majority. This is already a highly consensus-driven court, uh, the California Supreme Court. So the, the, the belief or presumption was that we would find the pro tem justices would just sign on to the majority, vote with the majority, uh, and or defer to the chief justice and move on with their lives to their caseloads and their regular day-to-day you know, uh, job. But um, as we noted, there was, there was an increased willingness for the pro tem justices to dissent relative to our expectations. So that, that was a bit of a surprise to us. Uh, that was an interesting observation. And at least to some extent for us, we found that a bit refreshing and that it, it made us you know, believe or, or we infer from that that the pro tem justices are doing their independent duty of taking these cases seriously and voting what they truly believe in terms of the outcome of the case. Sure. Certainly value to judicial independence. But you also write that, the, um, I guess, the occurrence of dissents from this group that you might think would be less likely to, to vote in that way created over the course of you know not more than a year when there was just a six-member permanent member court. Some uncertainty in the development of the law. Tell me a bit about uh, your point there. Yes, so that, that's a concern for us. And part of what motivated these studies as well is, is examining the court with Justice Werdegar's long absence after her retirement. The, the court, as you know, went about 18 months without a permanent seventh justice. So we want to we want to examine and make sure, you know, that there are no issues and to see what we can learn from, you know, multiple different sets of justices sitting pro tem to fill that seventh seat. The, the instability concern comes because we have different justices sitting on multiple cases who have different views. And that's a concern when you're dealing with the high court. The entire point of the California Supreme Court, really, one of the main purposes is to make sure the law is clear for everyone. And so pro tem justices being quite willing to dissent suggests the possibility that the law might develop inconsistent, inconsistently across two cases. We, we didn't see too many four, three split decisions that would specifically show an inconsistency in law, but that is a concern if that continues for, for the long term. One other concern had been during that uh, period between Wardegar's retirement and now uh, Justice Groban's ascension that there might be a drop-off in productivity at the court as the, the temporary justices come in and out. You found that wasn't necessarily the case? Yeah, we, we found possibly a little bit of support for that conclusion, but not as strong support as we expected. Uh, the productivity was actually not too bad. It's it's a little bit lower than a longer-term historical average, but for the more recent case output of the court, uh, the, the court ended up keeping up pretty well. And that, to be honest, that's, that's quite impressive, and I have to commend the court for doing as well as it did. There is the hypothetical that, you know, as Justices Cuellar and Kruger have gotten more used to the role, that they have, in, have increased productivity over time, and it's, it is indeed possible that a permanent justice justice earlier might have signaled better productivity than we see now. But but it is it is true that their productivity has not plummeted or dropped in any way that uh, would have raised a large concern for us. So we, we now officially have a, a a full court. So we'll we'll set aside now that the study of the the court with pro tem justices and move on to your, the one you just concluded that you wrote about on 
the California Constitutional Center site and also in the Daily Journal. This is a, a somewhat larger data set than that previous study, right? Tell me a bit about what you, you pulled in to the, the study in terms of data and tell me a bit about your uh, met- methodology. Yes. So we took cases uh, authored from about January 2015 forward, based on when Justices Cuellar and Kruger joined the most recent additions to the high court. And then we basically grabbed, end up, ended up pulling about 300 cases focused on cases decided on the merits, and we excluded procedural rulings. We really wanted to focus on the substance of the justices' writing. And here we were also looking a lot more at the individually written opinions by the justices to kind of gain a sense of their individual ideologies and if there was anything we could draw from them on a justice-by-justice basis. Then we'll kind of get into all that here, maybe starting with the the question that we addressed as with regard to the, the previous study. Again, you're looking at whether or not there are those blocks forming between two wings of the court, the more liberal and the more conservative side of the court, the senior justices versus the most recent Brown appointees. Here in this you know, three-year-long data set study, you said there's really not much evidence to show there are definable discrete voting blocks, right? Yes, that's correct. We did examine a few more cases in this study, which I think signaled a, a little bit more distinction between the previous sets of blocks. And then we also dug a little bit deeper into this newer study on the individual justices. So instead of looking at uh, how a justice generally concurs with their fellow Brown justices or the senior justices, uh, we, we examined a little bit more in depth, you know, how often does Justice Liu agree with Justice Cuellar, for instance. And we found that, you know, despite the previous observations of a, a small percentage increase in concurrences within the Brown and senior justice groups on an individual basis that there isn't a consistent block or consistent agreement among, uh, among the justices. They all tend to agree and concur quite often. You know, only 11% of the cases we examined had even a single dissent. So there's, it's still a high consensus court overall. And, and there's still some evidence of, of the of blocks, but on an individual justice per justice basis, it's not a reliable block. You don't have a reliable Justice Liu to Justice Cuellar or Justice Cuellar to Justice Kruger uh, vote kind of pattern that forms. They, they all tend to agree and disagree with each other, you know, pretty similarly and, and pretty often. Tell me a bit more about what the numbers say as to the, the consensus that the court, will, the court will try to reach, because you hear often sort of qualitative evidence that the court values consensus. You certainly hear the Chief Justice speak about that pretty often, but the numbers here do bear that out, right? Yes, absolutely. It's, you know, the, the, and that is the, that is the issue where we're kind of searching and digging for the interesting distinctions or differences. And the numbers really show that the, the court tends to be a consensus driven court. You know, 79% of the opinions, you know, involved of the cases that we examined involved all justice concurring in the judgment. And, you know, again, only 11% of, the, of these 300 or so cases had at least one dissent from a justice. That's, that's a very, very high concurrence rate. So there's, there's you know, the, the court has issued a large number of unanimous opinions. And so that the data bears out the culture uh, that people are aware of and the qualitative assessments of the court that um, others have been making for a long time. One salient issue sort of surrounding high courts in, in this country at, at present is just to what extent judges might be influenced by the, the, the political party of the 
executive that appoints a, a given judge, certainly in the wake of the most recent Supreme Court justice appointment hearings, we've gathered that partisan background suggests future judicial behavior. Your study here dug into that question of whether political background, political ideology, uh, party of an appointing executive determines judicial behavior on the California Supreme Court. Let's dig into that. You first, you know, there's a couple parts that are involved in, in sort of queuing up the data to answer that question. For one thing, you have to sort of figure out how to define whether a, a given written judicial opinion is more liberal-leaning or more conservative-leaning. And so how exactly did you go about coding whether a particular opinion was liberal or conservative? So we basically, you know, we, we looked at, we separated cases out in a, in a few different ways. One of them was to set out criminal cases uh, where the appellant, uh, inciting with the appellant, would tend to be perceived as a liberal result politically, inciting with the government or the prosecution would be perceived as a conservative result. On the civil side, it's a little bit more complicated. Oftentimes, siding with the plaintiff could be the liberal result. But the, we had to make some uh, judgment calls sometimes that on a particular decision that the you know, defendant in the civil case is actually siding with them would be the liberal result instead. So we did have to make a few judgment calls on the civil side, but separating between criminal and civil matters, plaintiff and defendant, uh, or for criminal cases, you know, the criminal defendant versus the government or prosecution was kind of our, our rough model for doing that. And that, of course, uh, you know, introduces you know, some uncertainty about the results because it's really hard to gauge what the liberal or conservative result is in any given case, uh, especially some of the ones that are a little bit more complex. I'd like to sort of dive into how the analysis plays out for each of the justices, but maybe we could just uh, first lay out kind of the, the top line conclusion, and that is that you found that, in fact, partisan or uh, seeming partisan affiliation or ideology didn't determine too terribly much the, the behavior of California Supreme Court justices. No. So, and that's, this is what the value of, I think, quantitative analysis is. Uh, doing that for any court, including the California Supreme Court sometimes, is difficult because we don't see all of the internal process of the court. And I think for the sake of the independence of the judiciary, we should not. We have their final opinions. We can read those. But I think doing the quantitative analysis helps us step away from merely asking which governor or which president appointed this particular judge uh, and, you know, what's their political party and what's their background, who have they worked for in the past. What matters at the end of the day are the opinions they write. And as we examined the results, we found some interesting differences, and we found that for the most part, I wouldn't call anyone on the California Supreme Court a heavy ideologue by any means. And that's, that's kind of refreshing for the independence of the judiciary, but it's important, it's important to examine because once we have this, this data set, we can, we can really sit down and say, you know, are, are the justices conforming to a single kind of party line idea in their voting behavior or their opinions? And we definitely did not see that in the data. Okay, then let's dive into some of that data uh, just a bit more deeply. So first, let's take Justice Chin, regarded largely as by many as the, the most conservative justice on the bench. Uh, tell me about, I guess, how you go about figuring out how you would predict um, his voting behavior and then how it lives up to what you might expect from his background. Sure. So, you know, Justice Chin, you know, he, he did serve in the military. Uh, he was a deputy district attorney, which, you know, based on our coding of, of conservative results for criminal appeals, that would be the prosecution or government side. So he should hypothetically, you know, based on background, 
tend to align a little bit more criminal, especially on, on or a little bit more conservative, especially on criminal matters. And, you know, he was appointed by Governor Duke Magian, a, a Republican. So that all tends to suggest, you know, and, and later uh, Governor Wilson as well. So Governor Wilson and Duke Magian, both being Republicans, appointed him. I think anybody writing the, you know, the two-second byline in an article would see the governor who appointed and assume conservative. So prosecutor, served in the military, all judicial appointments by, Republic, by Republican governors, and has, he's been labeled in other media articles as a moderate Republican, so to speak. So all this should signal, hypothetically, conservative results. But when we actually look at the data, we see some, some interesting differences uh, for Justice Chin. And looking at it, you know, and for me, I think one of the mo- most interesting things to look at are the, are the non-capital criminal appeals and habeas petitions. Uh, and the California Supreme Court, as you, as you likely already know, the, California, the court has to take on automatic death penalty or capital appeals. And for many of the justices, even the presumed liberal ones, the results there tended to trend conservative, if you will, or in favor of the government. Uh, that's actually not much of a surprise to us because at this point in time, the case law is very well developed on death penalty appeals. Uh, the California Supreme Court, in many of its opinions today, toward the end, tends to identify a lot of issues that appellants have raised numerous times in the past and the court has already decided. And so when the person appealing is arguing that something's wrong and it's long been established that that case question has been resolved, it's not surprising to us that many of the justices for capital or death penalty appeals trend toward the conservative or government side of the ball. So for me, the the interesting area for the criminal appeals is actually to look at the non-capital appeals, to separate those out. When you look at Justice Chin, he actually kind of splits down the middle. So he's, you know, in terms of his opinions written, he had 11 that came out toward the more liberal or, or appellant result, and 11 that uh, trended out more toward the respondent or the government side. So he's not strongly conservative in non-capital criminal appeals. So that, to me, I think is an interesting thing that shows that he's not, he's not an ideologue based on his background alone uh, when you actually look at the numbers. So he, he does, you know, on the civil side, he is, I believe, we're looking at this, yeah, he's waited a little bit on about a 3 to 2 ratio or 66% for civil side cases to trend conservative. But, you know, the non-capital criminal appeal for a prosecutor, you would expect, would wait much more conservative than it does. Let's dive into uh, Justice Corrigan. You also code as a likely conservative. She was appointed by Republican Republican governor. Tell me about what you found as to her voting behavior. Yes. So Justice Corrigan also had some interesting results as well. She trended actually, once again, if we're looking at the non-capital criminal appeals and habeas petitions, she actually trended fairly liberal. Uh, 13 opinions uh, on the liberal side, four on the conservative side, the 76% trend toward you know, liberal, if you will, using the term loosely defined, opinions for, for non-capital criminal appeals. You know, and then looking at you know, civil cases, she's only you know, slightly conservative, about a 58% outcome on that. So it's for us, we found in, in our conclusions that it doesn't her kind of voting behavior or opinion writing behavior doesn't really support assigning her an ideological label really of any kind. She does trend on the percent a little bit more conservative in civil cases. But uh, on the on the criminal cases that are not death penalty, she trends fairly liberal in terms of the opinion she's written. So it's a, it's a surprising result. I don't think many people would expect that. But that's why it's important to actually sit down and look at the numbers. Tell me about Justice Liu. She has a liberal reputation, taught at, at Berkeley, was nominated to the Ninth Circuit 
by Barack Obama. Tell me, did, did his numbers bear out uh, that, that reputation? Uh, I would say to some extent, yes. But again, you know, not, I, I don't think to the degree people would predict based on his uh, perceived political background and teaching at you know, Berkeley Law and his appointment by President Obama to the, or nomination by President Obama to the Ninth Circuit. Um, even in automatic capital or death penalty appeals, his results for writing were tended to be a little bit more conservative than liberal. Not as much as other justices, but he still had 14 opinions that we would we coded as conservative for death penalty appeals. Um, he, similarly to Justice Corrigan, is fairly liberal in the non-death penalty criminal appeals, which is to be expected. Uh, Justice Liu has written quite often on uh, his issues he's, he's had with uh, harmless error analysis in criminal appeals, and he's also written a fair number of times on jury selection or Batson-Wheeler issues. So it's not surprising to see that he trends liberal on the criminal appeal side. Uh, basic, and again, that's, that's pretty evident from reading his written opinion. So on the, on the civil side, he does trend liberal as well. So he's, we found that to the extent we can code any of the justices toward a liberal or conservative spectrum, um, he's, he's fairly reliably liberal. Um, and comparatively, again, only in a matter of degree, probably the most liberal member on the court. Okay. Now, I think if folks expected a, uh, a solid liberal voting block to emerge, it, w- it would be based on the two most recent Brown appointees before Josh Groban, Justices Cuellar and, and Kruger. Tell me about uh, what you found uh, in terms of their voting voting behavior. Yeah, sure. So I think that was the expectation looking forward at the time Justices Cuellar and Kruger were appointed, that they would kind of jump into this reliably liberal voting block with Justice Liu. And we actually haven't seen that bear out to be the case. So uh, Justice Cuellar does trend slightly liberal in non, non-death penalty criminal appeals, but not by much. And then on the civil cases, he, he's not, he, he trends a little bit slightly liberal as well, but not by much. So he's, he's definitely you know, a lot less uh, liberal than uh, one would expect. From what from what people were I think predicting at the time of his uh, of his appointment, so he he does tend a little bit trend a little bit liberal uh, in most categories if not all, but he doesn't you know it doesn't scream you know hyper liberal or a liberal ideologue by any means. So that's kind of you know an interesting thing to see. Um, we have similar results as well for Justice Kruger, for her you know and interestingly for Justice Kruger she has a very high pro-government or, if you will, conservative result for the capital appeal. Ninety percent of her opinions written, nine out of ten, trended toward the conservative side on the death penalty appeals. So she's not, she does not, you know, come across as this, you know, liberal, new liberal voting bloc along with Justice Liu and Cuellar. She is a little bit more liberal in terms of results on non-capital criminal appeals, but, you know, on civil cases, she's almost a dead split between uh, what we coded as liberal-friendly or conservative-friendly results. So again, Justices Kruger and Cuellar are definitely not matching to, I think, the expectation or prediction from some glancing at their background that they would be part of a new consistently liberal voting bloc. They seem to be kind of splitting fairly regularly in terms of their results on cases. And then last, but at least let's get to the chief. It was reported recently that she had updated her party affiliation to, uh, I believe, no affiliation from Republican. She does have Republican a Republican pedigree, though, working in Republican administration, appointed by a Republican governor. What uh, what did you find with the chief? 
Yeah, so so we, you know, the interesting result for me, I think, is actually looking at her civil side. So it's not too much of a surprise with her background that on the criminal side for non-death penalty criminal appeals, she t- tends to favor the government or the prosecution. Um, like most of the justices on the death penalty criminal appeal, she's, she consistently votes in favor of the government based on the very established law that the high court has already laid out in that area. But on the civil side, she's actually a lot more liberal than expected. Uh, nearly 70% of, of her opinions trend toward what we coded as a liberal result uh, for, for civil cases. And that's, I think that's a surprising number to, to many people from what they would expect from the, from the Chief Justice's background. Uh, but I don't, I don't know if that's truly shocking to us when we're looking at all of these numbers. Uh, the justices don't seem to bear very strongly you know, in any one direction or another on a consistent basis. And I think that just reflects that each justice, even with some minor liens or some slightly more liberal liens, such as Justice Liu, that they're all kind of just evaluating each case on the merits and voting or writing in the way that they think the case should come out. Admitting that this is you know, pretty reductive, could you indulge me and, and describe how, based on, on your data, you would describe the California Supreme Court bench as a spectrum from conservative to liberal? Where do the justices sit on, on that spectrum? Yes. So, and, and again, yeah, it's, it's definitely with the caveat that this is a, only a matter of degree, and uh, it is highly reductive, as you noted. Uh, but to the extent we can observe any sort of pattern, I'd say in all, basically any category, any way you slice it, Justice Lewis is probably the most liberal member of the court. Um, he writes separately. He, he writes quite often. He has many concurrences. And it's even both qualitatively reading those opinions and looking at the data, he tends to be the most liberal uh, member. Justice Chin in most categories, not all, in most categories tends to be a fairly reliable conservative uh, member and probably the most conservative on the court relatively, um, with the exception maybe that the chief justice in the non-capital criminal cases is probably the strongest conservative vote there. And then after that, it's kind of a, a jumble in the middle. Um, you know, depending on the category, Justice Corrigan shows up as fairly liberal, depending on which set of cases you're looking at, um, right after Justice Liu. And in other circumstances, she's closer to Justice Chin or the Chief Justice. And in many categories, Cuellar and Kruger are both right kind of in the middle, uh, slightly more liberal or slightly more conservative, depending on which category you're looking at. Um, so we've got Liu and Chin at the ends for the most part. And then the Chief really depends on our category. And, and definitely Corrigan, Cuellar, and Kruger tend to be somewhere in the middle with slight variances, depending on the type of case. Okay, then let's get out of the weeds and go back up to sort of the 30,000-foot level. If, if you look at the, the study as a whole, what um, among the conclusions did you find perhaps either the most interesting or, or the most surprising? I think what I found refreshing in particular was that it did not seem that any one justice had a strong, consistent lean that reflected a party platform or preferred political outcomes. Uh, that is something I, I did suspect. It wasn't, it wasn't necessarily a shock, um, but to see the actual data align with the perception of the court and that the court is not a highly partisan court was, I think, refreshing feeling to see. And it was, it was nice to know, and it, it just really reinforces you know, my confidence in the independence of the judiciary, uh, in particular in California. So I think that was probably... Uh, the largest surprise for me. I, I will say I was not expecting the Chief Justice to show up as as quite so liberal in her civil case opinions, uh, nor was I expecting Justice Chin to be so evenly split 
in non-death penalty criminal appeals. So all of that, seeing the different kind of ways they break when you look at the different categories, not just overall cases altogether, that was actually, I think, interesting and had a few specific detailed surprises for us. Okay, you say it's uh, it's refreshing to to be be less able to predict a, a court's behavior or a justice's behavior based on that person's political affiliation or the party of their appointing executive. You know that that contrasts with I think we've seen what is a somewhat palpable exasperation, perhaps with uh, with many that in say the U.S. Supreme Court it may be. That phenomenon might be less so that it, it's, it's easier to predict, say, where Justice Ginsburg or Justice Alito might be voting on a given case, and certainly not to impugn any federal judges, but people become to predict if a case is filed either in the Northern District of California or the Northern District of Texas, uh, how those cases are going to turn out. And there seems to be some kind of growing cynicism about the partisanship of judges in, in certain federal courts. In your view, what uh, what kind of explains why we might not we seen that phenomenon in, in the California Supreme Court. What's what are some differences that might explain that? Uh, so I think there are some informal cultural differences and some structural differences, um, and, I, and I'm happy to dive into those because I think uh, they highlight some great things about the state judiciary, and it's in particular how we handle the California Supreme Court. Uh, the first is the informal culture, and I am sure you've seen. You know, the Chief Justice has been quoted numerous times uh, as you know as the court you know, being very collegial. All the justices are working in the same building. They interact with each other a lot. They're very respectful and deferential to each other, and they are very interested in working with each other to, you know, kind of work together. That collegial nature, uh, that consensus kind of driven mindset is an informal cultural aspect of that court that is consistent. And as new justices are added on individually, even Justices Cuellar and Kruger we're only two justices added on to a court with five justices already on it. That informal culture, I think, kind of uh, persists over time and contributes to the court uh, being very consensus-driven and not looking to engage in sharp dissents or kind of fighting back and forth in the same way that other courts do. I'd also say that there's there are, there are a few structural items as well that reinforce that culture and ensure that it kind of continues over time. And the first one is the nominating process. So the U.S. Supreme Court nominating process is definitely fairly political. Uh, The president nominates, and then the entire U.S. Senate uh, confirms or appoints the justice. In contrast, you know, with the California Supreme Court, there's only a few people involved in that process. The governor nominates, uh, and then a commission composed of three people, the chief justice, the attorney general, and a senior presiding justice of the California Court of Appeal, sit on the commission and approve the nominee. So that is a much less, I think, hyper-partisan political process. You have, you know, two judges or justices and the Attorney General of California, you know, in an executive branch position. All of these people have strong legal backgrounds and legal education, and they're really committed to looking at the credentials and the qualifications of the nominee. So I think that nominating process makes it a lot less partisan from the outset, and so the focus is more on can the judge or justice, can the nominee do the job? Uh, and a lot less on, are they going to give us results that we want? And I think that's very important for judicial independence. Uh, I think there's some credit that's due to Governor Brown as well. He's very much focused, especially in a second set of terms here, on appointing very high-quality nominees to the court. 
you know, his recent appoint, appointees, including, you know, Justices Liu, Cuellar, Kruger, and Groban, are all, you know, very well-qualified individuals with, you know, a great set of credentials and great perspective and, and some strong legal writing before they even came onto the court. A final thing I'd like to note as well structurally is that there's, there's kind of a different process in terms of how the court works. There's a 90-day rule in the California Constitution and in a statute that requires uh, pending cases have written opinions issued within 90 days or the judges or justices involved don't get paid. So they, they can't get their paycheck until they comply. Well, so one would assume, and I think the intent behind that law was to get judges and justices to get opinions out quicker. Uh, well, that's done for the California Supreme Court in response, which needs to focus much more on getting the right result and making the law clear for everyone in the entire state. What that's done is, is force the court to make sure they're in a good place before they even set oral argument. They know they have to get an opinion out within 90 days of oral argument. So instead of rushing into that, there's a lot more, as they've described on their own website, you know, and publicly, there's a process where they kind of interact with each other and figure out the case before they even set for oral argument. Uh, one justice writes a calendar memorandum, and you know they, they circulate it amongst each other. All the justices weigh in individually on it, and, they, and that kind of runs. And if there's a huge disagreement or the initial writing justice doesn't have a majority, they can pass it off to another justice to finish it out and make sure that the opinion or the draft opinion or calendar memorandum, as it's called, is kind of in a really good spot before oral argument even occurs. That contrasts highly with the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, oftentimes, the, the justices on the U.S. Supreme Court are sort of talking to each other during oral argument for the first time about the case. So when they're questioning the litigants or the attorneys, they're often using the attorneys as ways to make points to their fellow justices and to start to try to persuade them. So there's a very big difference where there's a lot more opportunity for consensus building and for accommodating others' different views in the writing process of the state Supreme Court before the case even gets to the oral argument stage. I think that is part of the reason, if not a large part, of why the court has such high uh, concurrence rates with each other and very few dissents. They have a lot more time to work with each other uh, and rely on their informal culture of collegiality to make sure that they're kind of writing the best opinion overall for all the justices involved. So I think kind of all of those factors together make the court a lot less uh, hyperpartisan, or at least appear a lot less hyperpartisan than other courts, notably the U.S. Supreme Court, for better or worse. I had known about that 90-day rule, but did not realize it had teeth to it uh, in, in the form of that budgetary method. That's, uh, that's interesting. I, I'd have to double-check, but I don't think the, uh, the partial federal government shutdown has any, anything like that in terms of the, the U.S. Supreme Court, but perhaps uh, it should. Um, you, <laughs> you noted that there might have been a slightly different philosophy or a, uh, in a special deliberateness the governor took to to appointing this sort of second round of Supreme Court justices that he got in his second stint in the, in the governor's mansion. Of course, folks will remember the last time there was a majority Democratic court. It's, it's been a long time. It was um, in the, the 1980s, also a court composed of um, several Brown appointees and one that um, was at the center of quite a bit of political tumult with three of those justices being recalled, um, among them the Chief Justice Rose Byrd, who attracted a lot of attention for, his, for among other things, fairly liberal stances on, on the death penalty. It strikes me that based on, on your data, in particular some of the things you're saying about how there is consensus among the justices 
with regard to, to capital punishment. Seems you, you wouldn't be worried that we're looking at a, a repeat of that sort of court. Of course, the political con- context surrounding the California Supreme Court in the state in general being more liberal is, is certainly different too. But uh, what do you think about that? Yeah, absolutely. I think there are definitely some differences here. I think, you know, Governor Brown in particular took his time to really vet the candidates for each of his nominees and make sure that they were going to do a great job. I think also uh, all the justices on the California Supreme Court respect the importance of uh, making sure that the public kind of has buy-in, that the public perceives the court as legitimate. I think that's a concern both for the federal judiciary and state judiciaries. You know, courts issue these opinions and, you know, the, the enforcement of them, to some extent, is contingent on the public accepting the opinion. So I think, you know, the current justices on the California Supreme Court are very, very focused on that. Um, I, you know, I don't think they're consciously sitting there worrying about the next retention election and whether the voters will keep them or not. Um, but I will say there was an interesting outcome from the, the Rose Bird Court, you know, which had an, they had a 94% reversal rate on uh, in death penalty appeals and then after three justices were ousted by voters, the Lucas Court, you know, had a kind of a reversal, an 85 percent affirmance rate. And so I think to some extent, you know, there is that's got to be, I think, sitting in the back of one's mind at any given time of, you know, what's how does that affect the court and its independence? And I think, you know, what happened with with the Bird Court was definitely, you know, a travesty and a, and a blow to judicial independence. I don't think that sits the ways on the minds of the current court, but I think at all times, you know, public confidence and public buy-in to the judicial process is something that's on, I think, any 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 quality justice or judge's mind. So I think, you know, the, the political environment, too, is, as you note, is is quite different. It's not quite the same as it was during the Bird Court time. Um, and during the Lucas Court, you know, the, the harmless error doctrine emerged for death penalty appeals. So at this point in time, the new court or the current court doesn't have the difficulty of wrestling with with new law or new issues in death penalty appeals. For the most part, the law is well settled. So that state of the law, whatever it is, doesn't really, it doesn't really present a risk of voters kind of freaking out or worrying that death penalty convictions are getting overturned. You know, and that's, you know, that, that might be a case for in the future having death penalty convictions shifted to an initial appeal process for the intermediate courts because the high court doesn't really have many open questions in those cases that could spark any controversy. Uh, but I think that also helps the justices in the current context. And then I think the last point that, that matters in this, in this area is that, you know, voters have the initiative process. So if voters or the, you know, don't really like the way a judicial opinion comes out, you know, it's, they have a pretty powerful tool in the, you know, in, uh, initiative amendment process. So at the end of the day, you know, there may not even be a need to worry about the justices' uh, appointments or their rulings when the voters as a whole can kind of just re- rewrite or amend uh, significant portions or significant parts of the Constitution it, with some limits, but very few. So that, I think, also alleviates pressure on the current court uh, from having to worry too much about what the voters will think when they write their opinion. Okay, just one last one. You know, at kind of the center of your group's focus for the past more than a year has been how the court has been performing, uh, minus one permanent justice, how the pro tems have been performing and voting. Now that we have a, a full court, what uh, do you think your your group will, will be looking for in the next uh, you know weeks, months, and years? So I think 
we're just going to wait for written opinions to come down. We can try to assess some kind of trends or tendencies from how the new justice, Justice Groban, votes. The problem with that is, and part of why we haven't looked at it too strongly in our previous quantitative analyses, is that it kind of it eliminates the ability to tease out distinctions. The justices vote with each other often. Uh, as I noted previously, Justice Liu and Chin have concurred 92% of the time, and they're the furthest apart justices on the court. So we will mostly probably try to look at when Justice Groban starts issuing written opinions to start getting a real real feel for where he's coming out on a quantitative basis. Uh, in the early meantime, we can look at votes, um, but we'll get some really nice results once he gets a significant body of his own written opinions. And from there, we can start kind of really seeing where the court heads and if we see any overall discernible trends that differ from what we see today. Well, hopefully then we can check back in with you. Uh, Brandon Strasener, a senior research fellow with the California Constitution Center. Thanks very much for being on our podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Professor Richard Abel is a Michael J. Connell Distinguished Professor of Law Emeritus and Distinguished Research Professor at UCLA Law School. He was formerly president of the Law and Society Association and is a prolific author of works examining the functioning of the American justice system. His latest scholarship, A Pair of Books, published this past fall entitled Law's Wars and Law's Trials, tracks the performance of legal institutions throughout the post-9-11 war on terror and comes to the conclusion that Notwithstanding protestations from Chief Justice John Roberts to the contrary, political affiliation is in fact a pretty strong predictor of judicial behavior. He published a letter to the editor in the New York Times this week to that effect. He joins us now, Professor. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Listeners of the show will have just heard from Brendan Strasener, from the California Constitution Center. And he and his organization completed a study recently trying to seek the extent to which one could predict judicial behavior based on partisan background and political affiliations. The conclusion being that those variables are not particularly predictive of the California Supreme Court justices' behavior. That is something the Chief Justice of the United States, uh, John Roberts, has been trying to convince the country of um, sort of unusually vocally of late in a public pronouncement in response to the president. He described how, you know, in, in his traditional John Roberts umpires, balls and strikes fashion. Uh, there are no Obama and Trump judges, how judges simply are neutral arbiters applying facts to law or law to facts. Adam Liptak of the New York Times wrote to be as recently sort of describing the chief justice's mission here and how he is attempting to uh, reinforce this idea that judges aren't particularly partisan, notwithstanding the political tumult of the very recent Supreme Court nomination and appointment of Brett Kavanaugh. Anyway, you responded to, to that piece with a letter to the editor saying that Chief Justice Roberts here essentially, you know, is undercut by a lot of the evidence and many, much evidence that you have synthesized in some, some recent scholarship and, and two books published uh, just a few months ago about the way the U.S. federal court system operated and, and, and decided matters during the, the war on terror after September 11th. I guess tell me a bit about what your research um, shows and how it sort of counters this point that the Chief Justice is trying to hammer home that judges really are kind of neutral and not um, animated by their political uh, ideologies. So I began my research actually when Abu Ghraib broke in April, May 2004, and the 
core question that I wanted to pursue was how is the rule of law faring at a moment when the United States feels under attack? The attack actually occurred in, at 9-11, but the war on terror was then launched by President Bush, first in Afghanistan and then in Iraq, and of course it's still going on now. So I wanted to understand how law fares under situations of extreme tension, anxiety, and, and outright fear. Um, so that was the question. It was not a question about, about judicial bias. It was a question about how legal institutions in general responded uh, when they had to deal with issues of national security and, and how, they, how they were going to balance the tension between security and liberty and whether that balance was a, a balance that I felt was, was adequate. I worked on this for 14 years, and it ended up in two very long books, one called Law's Wars and the other called Law's Trials. And I'm going to focus on Law's Trials, which looks at how the legal process behaved in six specific areas. So th these are criminal prosecutions of those accused of terrorism offenses, a courts martial of American military accused of war crimes, military commission trials in Guantanamo Bay of the so-called high-value detainees, uh, the ones who were charged with actually the actual attacks on 9-11, habeas corpus petitions by Guantanamo detainees, uh, civil damage actions by two categories of people, uh, those who suffered injuries as a result of the war on terror themselves. Um, they were rendered, they were tortured, they were kept in secret prisons, and those who suffered from terrorism. And then finally, civil liberties cases broadly conceived, uh, demonstrations, people carrying signs, people wearing T-shirts, or what happened uh, in the instances where people tried to foment an anti-jihadist uh, anti attack, uh, an Islamophobic campaign against uh, American Muslims. So I looked at those six categories, and I was initially concerned really to understand how judges were deciding cases, the reasoning that they brought forward the rhetoric they used um, and what levels of agreement there were. And I, I was initially struck by the fact that these cases tended to foment an enormous amount of disagreement within the benches. So uh, district court cases would then get appealed to courts of appeal and then to the Supreme Court, and there would be reversals, and cases would be sent back down, and there would be further reversals. Or in the multi-judge uh, cases, there would be dissents, they would then go to unbanked hearings, and the, the banks would split often f uh, five to four, or six to five, or seven, seven to six. Um, and that the rhetoric that judges were using uh, in writing their opinions and sometimes in characterizing their colleagues was extraordinarily heated. And um, it, it showed a kind of anger, uh, impatience, and, and disrespect for colleagues, which is actually quite rare on the federal bench, where people tend to be quite collegial. So that, that's where I began. And then I thought, well, let, let me see whether politics does, in fact, track the kinds of decisions that are made. And I did so in the following fashion. Um, I used a very crude variable for the judge's political orientation, but one that I think is probably... Um, highly reliable. So I simply looked at the party of the appointing president. Um, there are occasions in which presidents appoint judges whom they, whom they know belong to the opposing party, but they're very rare. They're less than 1% of all judicial appointments. So the president's party is, um, is a fairly good predictor of the party affiliation of the judge. That's uh, part one. Part two, um, 
I was able to dichotomize the decisions themselves. So habeas corpus decisions are pretty clear. Either you vote that the petition is a valid petition and the petitioner should be released, or you conclude that the petition is invalid. Criminal prosecutions obviously are conviction or acquittal. The same is true for courts martial. The same is true for military commissions. So the the coding, I think, although undoubtedly people could quibble with a few of the cases, I think would elicit general agreement. And here's what I found. There were six categories of cases. In four of them, the president's party correlated very strongly, 0.001 in three of the cases and 0.00002 in the fourth case, which all statisticians would agree is a very high level of correlation. And those cases are the following. Habeas corpus petitions, civil damage actions by war on terror victims, civil liberties complaints, and reviews of electronic surveillance. In the other categories of cases, which is equally interesting, um, there was a correlation, but it was not statistically significant, and therefore it's probably not something that we ought to pay a great deal of attention to. So in criminal prosecutions, in military commission trials, uh, in courts martial, the party of the appointing president did not seem to make a significant difference. What is one to make of this? Well, again, if you look back to the rhetoric that judges used in their opinions, I think it it illuminates it. Uh, Judges who had strong civil liberties views declared those views. Um, Justice O'Connor famously said in one of the early Supreme Court decisions, the war on terror is is not a blank check for the executive. And these judges would typically begin with foundational principles, with typically with Marbury versus Madison, with the obligation of courts to find the law and to say what the law is, regardless of what the legislature or the executive has done. The other judges were equally uh, vehement about the need to prioritize security. They saw the very uh, survival of the nation at stake. And they believed that if they did not vote the way they did, they would jeopardize lives. And these, as I said, are are very strong, very strong statements. So I I don't want to generalize beyond the body of cases that I looked at, which are national security cases in the context of the war on terror. But in that context, I think the data are really irrefutable. Um, As you you say, that is a particular universe of of cases, and they all share... Um, some common subject matter relating to, to national security, a, an issue that evokes in, in different sorts of people different feelings and that tends to sort folks fairly discreetly along traditional party lines. Yeah, um, yeah let, me, let me add one, one caveat or, or, or rather a, sure. uh, a refinement because uh, I don't think it contradicts my, my basic point. I think we can learn almost as much from the cases where politics did not matter as from the cases where it did. So, as I indicated, criminal prosecutions were cases in which uh, party preference did not predict. In fact, Democratic appointees tended to convict more often than Republican appointees. How, how would one understand this? I think there are really two, two reasons. One is that criminal prosecutions are highly routinized. These are cases, the kinds of cases that judges are hearing all the time. The fact that they come up in the national security context does make a difference, and I could come back to that. But it doesn't make that much of a difference to what goes on in the courtroom. And judges really behaved 
I thought admirably in administering the criminal process. Um, they had to deal with unruly defendants, sometimes defendants who interrupted proceedings or insisted on appearing pro se. They they had to deal with issues of torture and how and and the possibility that if they excluded evidence on the grounds of torture, there would be an acquittal rather than a conviction. And my sense is that they behaved in, at, at the highest level of, of judicial performance. So I think it's partly that these are routinized and that they did not set off alarm bells in the, in the context of, of the federal judiciary. And I also think it has to do with the fact that uh, the defendants in this case were invoking law as a shield rather than law as a sword. Uh, to take the, the, the most extreme example of the opposite, some, some of the people who had been subjected to uh, rendition to torture in foreign countries or had been tortured themselves by the CIA or had been held in secret prisons uh, or had been abused in various other ways, filed lawsuits against um, the federal government or uh, some agencies of the federal government. And in those cases, um, the courts were being basically asked to say, the government behaved badly and we're going to punish it. And judges were very reluctant to do that. Um, whereas in the case of criminal prosecutions, the courts could simply say the the case has not been made out. Um, the the kinds of objections that defendants are raising are the kinds of objections that are raised by other defendants in other cases, and we're simply going to follow the, our routine procedures. One upshot of, of much of your research is that the political parties can be a, a fairly significant determinant of judicial behavior. I wonder what you would make of the conclusions of our previous guest that at the state court level here in California, the Supreme Court, that's that's less the case. Why might in that court the that phenomenon be be less prominent than say, in, in federal courts or at the the U.S. Supreme Court? So uh, several responses. Um, first, of course, I haven't read the study, so I'm I'm relying on your uh, paraphrase of it. Second, there is a very long tradition of political science research on the behavior of courts that dates back to really the founder of the field, Lyndon Schubert, in the 1950s. So we have 70 years of published research, which crunches the numbers on judicial behavior in lots of areas. This is not to gainsay the findings in the California Supreme Court, but those those studies consistently confirm that the party of the appointing president is a significant predictor of judicial behavior in a wide variety of cases. So now to the California Supreme Court, why that why might that not be true there? I don't think it's a difference necessarily between state courts and federal courts. Uh, it could be a difference in the political environments. California is now a strong blue state and has been that way for a long time. And the, it's more it's likely, although I don't know this, but it would, it would be something I'd want to study, that the political differences within the bench, especially the California Supreme Court bench, are much smaller than the political differences in on the U.S. Supreme Court, um, given the highly politicized nature of the nomination process over the over, over recent decades. And secondly, the difference between my findings and the California Supreme Court findings might well be explained by the fact that mine are focused exclusively on national security cases, where, as I said, it's unsurprising that politics would play a role whereas the California Supreme Court deals with a wide variety of cases, many of which have no obvious political significance one way or the other. They're basically technical matters. It, it seems to me that, that there is sort of a, a tacit debate or maybe in some quarters an express debate in, in the legal community between whether or not what the Chief Justice 
the U.S. Supreme Court Chief Justice Roberts is trying to do is is useful to at least put on the the fiction, the the theater that in fact judges are neutral; they just apply a lot of facts. That's mentioned in in, in the Liptak New York Times piece that this is often used as a, a useful fiction. I think plenty of folks subscribe to that notion. So, w- do you think that there is any use to to that idea, even if it's undercut? by most of the statistics showing that partisan ideologies are predictive of behavior, do you think it's useful for folks to, to think otherwise? It's, a, it's, it's the deepest question there is, and I don't have a, a, a single answer to it. Uh, on, one, on the one hand, I, I have been appalled by the way in which our president has assailed judges as Mexican judges or Democratic judges or judges on an island in the Pacific or denigrated them in all sorts of ways when they simply decide cases that in ways that he doesn't like, especially when they invalidate executive actions or legislation that he favors. That's appalling. No other president, as, as far as I know, no other president has ever done that. And no president ever should do that. That clearly is, is a gross abuse of the executive office. And so insofar as the Chief Justice Roberts is... is um, trying to uh, rebut that and to, to argue against it, I commend him. I think that's that's a, 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 a vital role, and I'm delighted that the, most, the highest judge in, in the land has, has taken it on. At the same time, how can we pretend that politics is unimportant when every time there is an appointment to the Supreme Court and increasingly to the courts of appeal in the federal uh, federal district courts, there, these are hotly contested. We we know that Trump has vetted his judicial appointments solely uh, on political grounds. That there is a litmus test on issues like abortion or gun control or affirmative action or, or any of gerrymandering, voting rights, any of the contested issues. And Trump is trying to stack the federal judiciary in a way that will guarantee um, that uh, his his actions will be upheld. So. I don't think we can blind blind our eyes to the politicization of the judiciary. Um, I think we have to deal with it, uh, and and I also think that the the president should be condemned for his attempt to rebuke the judiciary on, in, in the ways that he's done. Okay, well, as you say, it's certainly a, some profound questions here. Glad to have scholars like you working on them, Professor Richard Richard Abel. His most recent books are Laws, Trials, and Laws. Wars, professor at UCLA. Thanks very much for being on the, the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity. And with that, our program for January 4th, 2019 is complete. Thanks one more time to all of my guests, Professor Richard Abel, Brandon Strasner, and our reporter, Paula Ewing. Thanks also go out to my production staff here, principally Nick Perez. And thanks to you for tuning in. It is greatly appreciated. Please don't forget that we can now be found on a variety of podcast streaming avenues, principally the iTunes and podcast app on iOS devices. Just search for Weekly Appellate Report there. Doing so, finding us, uh, listening, rating, reviewing, sharing, uh, is all super helpful in getting the word of our show out to other folks. And also, of course, don't forget that CLE credit is available for listeners of the show. It's super easy. You can get one hour of California CLE credit for having tuned in to find a short true-false test on our dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. I'm Brian Cardell. Look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week. <laughs>